I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my up- Upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Get Rich Slow Club podcast is a collaboration between Tash Etchman from Tash Invest and Anna Christina from Perla. The Get Rich Slow Club acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land we record on. From coast to coast, across land, waters and communities, we pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Any advice is general and does not consider your financial situation, needs or objectives. So consider whether it's appropriate for you. Welcome to the Get Rich Slow Club podcast, where we take you from beginner to confident investor, where we can teach you everything you need to know about investing. So come get rich slow with us. Today's episode, we are covering all the things you need to know about how to keep safe when it comes to your finances, what you can do to reduce your chances of being targeted for financial crime and how you can reduce your risk. We've got Leah Bennett on the show. She has over a decade of experience working in fraud and financial crime. She's also a recent graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors and sits on the board of directors for the First Nations Foundation. She's passionate about helping others and creating a positive impact when it comes to finances. We are very excited to talk to Leah about all things financial crime and fraud. But before we do, we always share our money wins and losses of the week. Leah, do you want to go first? Um, Yep. So this week I decided that I would do my food shopping at a few independent grocery stores rather than just getting all my groceries from one store. Um, which meant I went to the butchers and the fruit and veg shop. But by doing that, I was able to save about 50% of what I would normally spend. So I was pretty happy with that. That's a lot of money, 50%. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's huge. Do you think it took you 50% more time as well? It definitely did. Um, I think the best thing is, is that I think with the smaller independent places, they have less variety. Um, and so I was actually buying less than I, I probably normally would um, on things that I don't actually need. Um, but it did take longer because obviously you had to 
drive around a little bit and go to different places. But I think it was worth it to say 50%. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. There's always a bit of a trade-off. We often talk about groceries because the cost of living and food is so, so high. So, But probably if this was the first time that you've done it, maybe you'll get faster at it in the future, knowing what you want. (laughs) And not being tempted as well is a huge one. I find when I walk in and there's all the specials, I get so excited about stuff I would never normally buy. Yeah. I always say with Audi, avoid the middle aisle. (laughs) Just walk around the outside. Just don't go to the special buyers in the middle. (laughs) Mm -hmm. For sure. Mine's kind of food related as well. I've been trying to test all the different meal delivery boxes and trying to get all those discounts. So I got every plate this week. Um, It ended up costing me, I think, $20 because I got cash back and a sign-up bonus. And that was $20 for five meals for two people. So I think that's a big win. Wow. That is a huge win. Mine is not food related. I think I mentioned a while ago that we were getting new aircon installed in our place. We have solar panels and we have now been tracking our usage. And in the daytime, it's virtually four to six cents an hour to run our aircon because of our our solar panels. So I think the biggest save cost savings we're going to get is in the winter because we have gas and now we'll be using the split system. So I'm very excited. It's It costs a lot to get it installed, but I, I think it's going to pay dividends in the long run in terms of um, our energy costs. So that's a huge win on our end that we're tracking very closely. My partner has uh, that app I think I mentioned before, something pal, energy pal. Um, so you can actually see your energy consumption on the hour at the moment. So Ooh, it's um, like that. Yeah. Um, I mentioned it before. I can't remember the actual name right now on the top of my head. How much but- do aircons normally cost to run per hour? In comparison to the four to six cents. Well, we were looking at when it was at the um, at peak, and it was I think closer to maybe sixty cents or something. Oh wow! Okay, hectic. So it fluctuated. It fluctuated depending on on the time. So we were just going off and on. We'll have to do like this is just day three. <laughs> so okay. I'll have to. I'll, I'll give you an update in in a bit of time. But it is interesting looking at the energy, um, our energy consumption, and, and seeing how we can reduce it and also save on it. So yeah, amazing. Cool. Leo, we are so excited for our chat today. Our first question, um, we know you have a long history of working in the financial sector. What is financial crime and how did you even get into it? Yeah, so financial crime encompasses uh, money laundering, terrorism, financing, fraud, and under fraud, I guess you would also include scams. There's also like tax evasion and things like that in there as well. So Financial crime is a broad term used. I specialize predominantly within fraud and scams. And how did I get into it? Well, it wasn't intentional. I had graduated from school, had gone to university, um, and my intention was to become a psychologist. And I was working in a bank at the time, obviously still needed to pay bills and needed an income and a succumbent had come up in the fraud team and I was like, I don't even know what fraud is. (laughs) I was so young at the time. I was like, I don't even know what fraud is, but get me out of here. I want to go try something else. So it was supposed to be for eight months and I loved it so much. I, I'm a very analytical person. Um, and so it was perfect for me. Uh, I spent most of my days sitting down analyzing data and transactions and uh, customers' behavior. And so I just got such a thrill out of it. Um, I loved being able to uh, help people, which I guess is the center of why I wanted to become a psychologist. And then I just worked out that I was really good at it and they extended this secondment and then next minute it's 14 years later 
and I'm still working. Wow. <laughs> I'm still working in in financial crime. So I didn't finish university, and I just kind of stuck to a career in in financial crime. Oh wow! So you didn't end up finishing psychology. You just stayed working at no. in the same place. Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. So I worked across multiple industries. I didn't just sit within banking. Like I've worked in the gaming industry and superannuation, obviously predominantly within the financial services sector, but yeah, moved around a bit and just learned about how financial crime works amongst those, those industries. So yeah. I love the stories of people studying one thing and then going into something completely different. I love that. Yeah. Well, I mean, like I was so young, I, honestly, I didn't really know what fraud was. I think I kind of understood it. I mean, when I started out in fraud, there was still a fraud check team uh, that were sitting down checking checks essentially to make sure that they were legitimate. The internet banking fraud team was quite small. So there wasn't a lot of, I think, or it was just the start of that happening. So it's been really interesting to see how fraud has developed over time. The more we move away from face-to-face interactions um, and everything's online, like I can't even remember the last time I went into a branch. <laughs> so it's, it's a really exciting industry to be in because it's constantly changing and evolving. You probably don't remember the last time you've used the check either, right? <laughs> I mean, how much banking has evolved since then? Um, so I, I think like when people hear fraud, it doesn't sound very exciting. Like, oh, it just, or, or at least I, I feel that way. Maybe I'm like, oh, fraud. What do you think is the biggest misconception when it comes to financial fraud? Like, what do you wish people really understood about that? What makes you excited about it? And why should other people care? It will probably happen to all of us at some point. I think the biggest misconception that I want people to really understand, and I've done a lot of like uh, scam awareness training, and this is kind of at the center of it for me, is that people who are victims of scams are silly, like they're stupid or they're, you know, not intelligent or they deserve what's happened to them or something along those lines because a lot of the, I guess, the stigma around it is, well, you should have been smarter and you should have known better than to be a victim of a scam. But, I mean, and we'll probably talk about this in, in the podcast is how much emotional manipulation is involved in become being a victim of a scam. It can happen to any of us. But we have more control over it than we think we do. And so it's really important that we take control of our own security and implement things now and continuing into, I guess, the future with all the changes that will happen again, like we talked about, like moving away from face-to-face interactions and being more online. If we want to move into a society that's like that, then we have to take more accountability for our own personal information and how secure our information is. So what are some of the things that we can do to reduce our risk, I guess? Yeah, I would say maybe the top three things that I would say that you could do right now is one, the boringest of all of them (laughs) is download antivirus protection onto your computer. I think one of the biggest issues that we have is we pay for it. We pay a couple of hundred dollars for some antivirus protection and it sits in the background of our computer or, of our, or our phone and we don't we don't use it and then we get a bill in 12 months saying you need to renew this and then we kind of sit there and we go oh do I really need to renew it like it's like yes actually you really do because <laughs> you don't even realize how much personal information you store on your laptop and so what I do on a regular basis is I clean my laptop up so say for instance I've applied for something and I need to send in a copy of my driver's 
license or my passport, that information is then sitting on your computer, which means if a hacker was to get in there, they would have access to your identification. So making sure that your computer is cleaned up, that you don't have personal documents sitting on there um, that aren't secure or locked, and then having antivirus protection on your computer and your phone at all times to ensure that if for some reason somebody did get into your computer that it would be identified and that person stopped. So we undervalue antivirus protection because it costs us money, (laughs) but it will save you in the long run one day. The second thing is one of the things that I do is I don't have one bank account. I have multiple bank accounts. So I have a savings account where the majority of my money will sit, um, which is completely separate from my everyday transaction account. It's actually with a different bank. You probably don't have to be as extreme as me, but it's with a different bank. And then I transfer money if I need it. I also have two accounts that are kind of linked to one another and it's my everyday transaction account. So whether or not I want to shop online or I do my grocery shopping or buy petrol, whatever it may be, I have another account that's attached to that. So when I go to Woolworths or I go food shopping or whatever it is, I will transfer the money over into that card in order to make that purchase. What that means is if your card details are stolen, the majority of your savings is not linked to that. So they can't access that. But it also means that you're, say, you're the type of person that might allocate a week's worth of money towards, you know, your bills and all that sort of stuff. All that money is not sucked up if they do get access to it. So I only transfer money into that card when I need it and when I use it. And then all my money is kept separately. Now with things like card fraud, it's a lot of the time the financial liability falls back onto the financial institution. It's more of an inconvenience, right? You'll have your card stopped and then you might not have access to money, but it is a really good way to ensure that they don't have access to all your savings. Um, yeah. It's a good tip if banks go down too. Like a yeah. while ago, we we saw that happen in a lot of small businesses suffering or people not being able to access money. So even just having a couple bank accounts may be beneficial in a situation like that, not just a fraud one, but yeah. an additional one. Yeah. And I also see um, credit cards advertise that they are safer and have more scam protection. Do you think that's true compared to debit cards or that's just a marketing thing? It's been a little while since I worked in card fraud. So I've been in superannuation the last like five years. I think that that when it's really complicated, right, because when you're setting up fraud rules as a financial institution or as a fraud team, you may allocate different rules to different types of cards. And so if you have a platinum card or something like that, but essentially I don't necessarily would say that it has more protection over the credit card than it would your debit card. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just marketing. Cool. Marketing. But every, <laughs> bank, every bank is different. I don't know. Like. <laughs> I found um, just like personal experience, like Amex has been really good to deal with because they answer the phone really quickly compared to something like ANZ where you, I was on hold for three hours when something happened. So yeah, three hours. Varies. Yeah, yeah, someone hacked in and I think they got to my Uber account. I don't know what happened, but they ordered like 20 Ubers in an hour and I was in an area where they didn't have Uber and I was trying to call them to stop it. They just weren't answering for hours and it was pretty hectic. Oh. And in the end, it was all solved. Some banks are better for fraud detection than others. One of the banks that I bank with is St. George. And if I notice a transaction on my, um, like 
online banking that I didn't make, I can actually just click on that and say reported as fraud. And then I can block my card myself and reorder because I've had to do that. It was only for a couple of cents, but I noticed that that was called a test transaction, which is probably something that we could talk about today is no, you can actually identify fraud happening before it actually starts to happen. Like if you notice an unusual transaction for a small amount with an organization you don't do business with, that could actually be what they call a test transaction. So they're testing to see if the card's working. So there's been times in the past where I've noticed a test transaction on my card for a really small amount. I've been able to report it, block my card and reissue a new one. And then they call me so I don't have to sit on the phone like send you a good like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's <dog awesome>. call. <laughs> so everything's different like that. The third point that I was going to make was around um, identification and something that you can do right now, which is to assess how much personal information you have online. So I can tell you right now that my own family struggles to find me on social media. <laughs> I don't use my real identity. I definitely don't put my date of birth up on Facebook. I don't have family links in, you know, my social media and things like that. So I limit the amount of personal information that's out there. Um, and all of my social media is locked up. I know in some cases you can't uh, like really avoid putting up like your full name on social media, especially if you do things like podcasts and mm. <laughs> things like that. I often but think about that. The I red flags in my this. head going yeah. off being like, oh, my personal yeah. information. Yeah, that's yeah. okay. <laughs> you know, my date of birth on Facebook is something completely random and then it's like 1905, right? Like it's, mm. I, I won't I won't put my real details up there. And I think when those like things like Facebook were put up, they, they had a good intention. But what fraudsters do is always exploit that, right? They find a way to exploit that. And so limiting the amount of personal information that you have on social media is really important because I know people in my own personal life, as well as victims that I've dealt with on a regular basis, whose identity was stolen purely through social media. And so if you can lock down your accounts, make them more private and limit the amount of information that you have on there, you've got a higher chance of being able to protect yourself from identity theft. Those are really great tips. And, uh, makes me feel terrified about (laughs) how much information about me is out there. Yeah. Thanks for sharing those. (laughs) Yeah. Going back, you said um, everyone can be a victim of fraud or a scam. Do you have any stats that you can share with us around fraud? Like how many people are affected and what amounts they're affected for? Yeah. So most recent statistics, um, not so much around fraud because they don't release that data, but what we do have is data on scams. These statistics also, I just want to remind you, uh, what was reported. So there are a lot of victims of scams out there that don't report on the issues that happened. So what was reported for 2023, so last year's statistics was that there was 400 and I think $55 million were uh, of money lost just in Australia alone um, wow. to scams. It's really interesting because I've been watching these statistics obviously for years to see how they change and all that sort of stuff. So every year it does go a little bit bigger. Like it's definitely more than it was the year before. What's really interesting is that victims are split down the middle. So it's almost 50% men, 50% women equally scammed, but men lose more money which I find really interesting. There's two theories on that. Men earn more money and therefore have more money, but also men are willing to risk more 
So when you look at the most popular scams, it's investment scams and romance scams. And so that makes sense as men are more likely or have a higher risk tolerance towards investment than what women do. And so potentially that's why they lose more money, but it is pretty much 50-50. We also know that the bulk of people who are victims to scams are over the age of 65. So as you get older, you're more likely to become a victim of a scam. And again, because the two biggest scams are romance scams and investment scams. So I think investment scams were around $270 million last year. That wow. is like far bigger than any other scam. And then you've all got, you've got the little scams that go on like social media scams where, you know, someone will place an advertisement up on Instagram for like a, you know, a free trial or something along those lines and then they get their money stolen. But the bulk majority sit under investment scams and romance scams. And I believe that's because of the emotional manipulation that's used in those two schemes. Do you have an example of an investment scam that you've seen a lot of? Yeah. So it usually the ones that I've dealt with is where someone has called somebody an unsolicited phone call and they're saying that they're a financial planner. They, um, they're calling up to see if there's any financial, free financial advice that can be given to an individual. What they actually start out to do is just ask a lot of questions. So they don't force anything on anybody. They just ask a lot of questions like, you know, and it's more around how are you feeling? So how are you feeling about where you are financially? You know, what are your biggest fears or insecurities? Like, are you worried you're not going to have enough at retirement or that you're not going to be able to live the quality of life that you want to? And so they get a lot of really personal information out of that individual. And they might say, well, you know, I plan on retiring in the next five years. I've only got this much within my superannuation account and this much in savings and I don't own a home. And so the frauds is spending a lot of time working, trying to get as much information out of this person as possible in order to use it to manipulate them, right? So they can then turn around and say, well, we actually have this thing that you can invest in and it will give you the return that you want. So you could end up retiring with an extra, say, $500,000 in the next five years if you invest in this thing. But then what's then added is if you don't do it now, and you don't invest now, then you're going to miss that opportunity and you're not going to be able to have the retirement that you want. So then they start using that information to slip it on them, to start manipulating them into making decisions they wouldn't normally make. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. 
So that is probably the most common investment scam that I've dealt with personally. That's so terrifying and so brutal as well. Well, you can see how the emotional manipulation would work. I know my, my parents are older and um, I think you, you mentioned that older people are more susceptible to, to being scammed. And I think a lot of it is because they don't also understand technology or they can't keep up with all of the information that's there. My mom told me that she got a phone call that her credit card got hacked and, you know, they were asking for all her, her date of birth and this information. And she was just about to give them the credit card information because she thought it was the bank. And then she accidentally got cut off from the, she accidentally hung up or something, pressed a button. (laughs) And then it was in that moment where she's like, what am I doing? Someone called. I don't even know if that was the bank. And you realize that you're, you're just, you're wanting to be helpful. There's that emotional connection. People care. They want to help you. And it's an easy way to be manipulated. Um, yeah, so scary. Yeah. It happens. It happens quite a lot. And I've seen it in superannuation. Like I've dealt with people who wanted to withdraw their superannuation and take out like a lump sum withdrawal and put it into like a self-managed super fund only to find out that that self-managed super fund um, or the people that were setting up that account was, it was illegitimate and that money had gone overseas. One of the biggest issues is once it goes overseas, it's really hard to get back. If it stays within the banking system within Australia, it's a lot easier to go, okay, no, actually that was not a legitimate transfer and, you know, it was fraud and we need that money back and then, you know, they're able to do that. But in a lot of these cases, um, the scammers and fraudsters were overseas setting up fake self-managed super funds. So like, but there's plenty of things that you can do in that situation, right? Like is to, to say, look, let me have a think about things because no legitimate financial planner will ever force you into making a decision without thinking through it, right? And being able to, like, if you say, look, I need to think about this or I need to talk to my spouse about it or whatever it may be, majority of the time a financial planner will go, yep, absolutely, you know, come back to me and let me know. If you feel that there's this sense of pressure to make a decision right there and then, your alarm bells need to start going off because, there are other things that you could be doing with your money and feel a lot more secure about it than being forced into a situation. So again, it's really hard in that moment, right? Because there's a lot of information being thrown at you. And if you have low uh, levels of financial literacy in general, and people are using big words and making it really difficult to understand, sometimes people will just make decisions because they're like, well, this person knows more than I do. Mm. It's, it's interesting too, because I would assume that with some of the romantic scams, maybe more time is involved. And uh, like, this is just me not knowing anything about fraud where it plays more on the emotional thing. Whereas an investing thing is like, you might be missing out now, whereas a dating is, is a more romantic one, kind of like a longer burn. Do, do you know? I'm just, this is yes, my guess. I do. So I've worked on a lot of romance scams. They're probably the worst cases that I've dealt oh, with. Just really imagine. hard heartbreaking. There was, I remember this woman whose husband had passed away. Um, and luckily he had like life insurance. He had superannuation. The house was paid off. So she was left in a financially secure place. She was actually really great with her money. She had spent a couple of years just traveling around and, you know, just working through the process of grieving her husband. And then a friend had suggested that she get onto online dating and she did. And she met somebody. And a lot of the time with fraudsters and scammers, they're 
supposedly in the army or the navy like they're not you can't go and see them tomorrow right and I think in this instance he was in the navy and said that he was on a three-month deployment and that he would be returning and during that time they built a really beautiful relationship or so she thought to the point where he actually like sent her flowers and gifts and, you know, would send her a message just to say, like, I hope you have a wonderful day. And during this time, she didn't even realize that she was telling him about her personal financial situation. So what you think is just a normal conversation with some guy that you're interested in, like, you know, what are your hobbies? And and she would say things like, you know, since my husband passed away, I've been really blessed to be financially stable enough to go and travel. And I've been here and I've been there. But what that's telling him is I've got money. And so in her particular instance, he was really, uh, really good at kind of building a false sense of security in that relationship too. He was a safe space for her. I'm telling you, this went on for months. Like this was not a one week and then hit them up like, can I have a thousand dollars? He invested so much into her. And then it started with, there was an issue with something and he didn't have access to money and he didn't ask her for money. She offered it and he said, no, no, no. And then she said, no, no, look, it's just a, you know, a thousand dollars. And he's like, okay, but I'll give it back to you on Wednesday. Not only did he give it back, he gave it back on Tuesday. Right. So he's building trust in this yeah, relationship because yeah. like, you'd go, well, if he was a scammer or if it's he was a fraud star, he's yeah. not, get, why would he give me money back? And this might happen a few times, right? Cause he's on deployment. He can't contact his bank or, you know, and he needs to pay for something or whatever it may be. And you know, the excuses that they come up with, there was like a, a few times where he would borrow money and give it back and give it back sooner than he said he would until it gets to the point where something, some significant event happens. And then she just sends him money because she's like, you know, you need this and I I trust you and I know that you'll give it back to me. It's like the Tinder swindler. Is yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Like if you watch that doc on Netflix, <laughs> like it blows your mind, but you can see how people are invested. They care, right? Like oh, as humans, you can't help but emotionally connect to someone and want to help if you're in that situation. Um, you yeah. know, and, and, and back to your point, it's not that these people are silly or stupid or it's, it's, it's just human nature, right? To help other people. And almost everyone I speak to these days that are with somebody met their partner online. Like it's not an uncommon thing to, to meet somebody online and to spend some time getting to know them and then meeting up. So I I fear that the more common that becomes, the more we'll see romance scams grow. And I don't have the statistics in front of me on romance scams, but we're talking over $20 million just in Australia alone was lost to romance scams. I think think 3,500, something like that, people were victims of a romance scam just last year alone. But the reason why they're probably the worst cases is she lost a couple of hundred thousand from that, right? Which is not great. But for her, she just lost her husband and just built up the courage to, you know, try and, and find a new relationship. It was the months she had invested in this person who became a safe space to her, for her in her grieving and, and all that sort of stuff. So they actually have support uh, what are they called? Like networks for victims of romance scams and, and all that sort of stuff to remove some of that shame and stigma around it. It's really important that victims understand 
that they're not to blame. Like these, yeah. this is their full-time job. Like my full-time job is stopping fraud. Their full-time job yeah. is doing fraud. Like they're the yeah. best at what they do. So yeah, like they are the long game. You're absolutely right. They're in it for the long haul. They know what they're doing. Um, they know who to target so that it's not a waste of time and Again, it's people divulging so much information about their personal lives to people they haven't met. And I think that's the key thing. I think if you haven't met them and you haven't had the ability to um, get a sense of who they are, because I don't believe that you can really get a sense of who somebody is over the phone or, you know, via texting or anything like that. I believe you have to sit in front of a person to really, I think everything from the way that they talk in their body language and, and all that is a, a good sign of being able to indicate whether or not this person is being truthful and honest. And when you're doing that via text, you can't do it. So I think I think the only way to minimize a lot of this is if you haven't met them, <laughs> if you don't know them, don't send them money and do not give them your personal information. Yeah. Oh, that stuff is, uh, it, it, it hurts my heart, you know, yeah. um, to, to hear these stories because I can just imagine this person wanting to connect with someone, wanting to have a relationship, putting themselves out there. And then it's not just the financial blow, which is huge. It's the emotional self, like the blow to yourself of, of wanting to do that. Yeah. Oh, so hard. I'm sure you've heard such horrible <laughs> stories. Like, yeah, like it must yeah. be absolutely gut wrenching. I am going to switch gears a little bit. I, I know that you've worked in, you know, a financial crime in a couple different capacities, like you said, within super and so forth. And you're also on the board of the First Nations Foundation that focuses on financial wellness and economic freedom. And you're also on the Westpac Indigenous Advisory Committee. So financial literacy is so important to so many groups. And we've often talked about it from the perspective of age or gender or privilege. Um, there's also the cultural lens of that. And and I was wondering if you can just talk about why it's so important to have these various perspectives when it comes to financial literacy, especially around risk management and um, and how that kind of connects to different communities. Yeah, I think we all have very different views of money. Um, if I talk about it from the perspective of a First Nations woman, our approach to money differs to Western society in that Western society is predominantly about the accumulation of wealth. So saving, buying a home, investing it, whereas First Nations communities participate in what's known as a sharing economy. And so it's very community focused and therefore having more specific, relevant training to different, uh, you know, age groups or it could be disabilities or vulnerable people within the community is super important because what money means to people is at the core of how people see and use money. And so, you know, being a part of an Indigenous community that very much participates in a sharing economy, whilst it was really good prior to white settlement because it means that no one went without ever, in Western society it can actually be harmful in that if not all of the community is participating, it ends up being humbugging, which is essentially financial abuse. So talking about financial literacy at a level that is able to be understood from a cultural lens um, for not just First Nations community, but for a lot of people is super beneficial. When we talk about risk management in the areas of First Nations cultures, like 
they are considered vulnerable uh, part of our community and therefore are targeted by fraudsters as well. Um, so yeah. we do see frauds that are specifically targeted towards First Nations communities because they understand that there are low levels of financial literacy there that I guess the best way to put it is desperate people can do desperate things when they're in a desperate situation. So one of the great things um, being a part of First Nations Foundation is being able to provide financial literacy that is one beneficial to, I mean, I, I think anybody could go and do the training, like regardless of whether or not you're a First Nations person or whatever, you could literally do the training with First Nations Foundation and find something beneficial about it. But to be able to bring it down to a cultural perspective is really beneficial and helpful for First Nations people. Yeah, I think the community and the cultural side things sometimes gets forgotten about when we talk about financial literacy. Like it's easy to talk about gender and this and that, but people's backgrounds greatly impact how they think about money, how they talk about money, whether it's more of a community or looking for yourself or, you know, certain cultures have um, a focus on cash, whereas, you know, for example, the Indian community has a large focus on, on collecting gold due to the cultural relevance of it. So it is so important, so important in having that kind of financial discussion around, around financial literacy. Um, do you have any ideas on, on how fi- we can do better with financial literacy? I mean, like in Australia, it's at an all-time low as well. Um, I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts around that when it even comes to fraud or communities or what would you love to see? I'd like to see it in the education system a little bit better. I think it needs to be a priority in school. I don't want to see any more generations come through the school system prepared to work but not financially benefit from that work. You see a lot of people come out of the school system and they go and get a high paying job where like in the mines or, you know, something like that. And they've got nothing to their name in their twenties and thirties because they weren't taught how to do it. I think the government needs to recognize that it's not up to parents to provide financial literacy for children because that also doesn't make sense, right? If you've had a bunch of generations go through the school system and not teach them financial literacy and know statistically that financial literacy is at an all-time low, then why are you relying on those people to teach the next generation financial literacy? It makes no sense to me. Just increases the wealth gap if those people you know can teach, but the others can't. Exactly. That's it. And so um, I would like to see that change on a government level that every child, like if we're going to prioritise literacy in general, reading and writing, which are, are key skills in order to find employment and be successful, that we would also prioritise financial literacy in the same bucket and say this is this is a necessity. The fact that there's still people out there that don't know how to open up a bank account that doesn't have any fees attached to it. It should be like, that should be taught or like, you know, what is, what is superannuation? Why are we relying on parents and employees? I mean, superannuation was only mandatory in the eighties. So we have many generations living in Australia today that really didn't have any superannuation or don't know all that much about superannuation. And yet we're relying on those people to educate their children on superannuation or we're relying on employers to teach about superannuation. Why is that not taught at school? That should be like we're preparing you to go into the workforce. This is a huge part of it. Like so where I would like to see things change is that the government makes it all across Australia. And I know that education is often a state-based thing, but that it becomes 
a mandatory change within Australia that everyone would get financial literacy. But I think also for those people that aren't at school, you kind of have to take your power back on that one and you have to go, okay, I don't know much about a particular subject and so I'm going to start from the bottom and work my way up. You know, whether or not it's just general understanding general banking and, and how that works and how your bank account works to interest rates, like if you go and get a credit card or your car loan and things like that. You don't have to start out and like, how do I invest my money into, you know, cryptocurrency or yeah. like anything like that. I think learning the basics and being able to listen to podcasts like this that teach you about financial literacy. There are plenty of um, free resources out there. I think the ACCC may have, is it the ACCC? Money Smart. Oh. Money, Money Smart. Smart yeah, ASIC, yeah. that's it. Sorry, yeah, ASIC, ASIC, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. they do have resources available um, and even being able, like if you bank with somebody, being able to connect with a banker there to be able to say, like, I need to learn more about these things. Can you point me in the right direction? But, yeah, I think for those of us that are out of school, I think we have to we have to take responsibility and accountability ourselves to do that. Do you have some quick tips to see if something is a scam? Because I've had conversations with people that kind of go the other way where they feel like they aren't empowered enough to figure out if something is a scam. So they just disconnect from it all. So when you're I looking Google at it. an investment platform or something, <laughs> yeah. What do you Google? I, I go like I Google it. Like so um few years ago when Spaceship opened up and I heard a few people talking about it. I spent time researching it, right? So I'd go onto social media platforms and see what people were talking about when it came to that, um, their experiences, um, people who obviously weren't being paid by Spaceship, you know, YouTube, um, TikTok, and then Googling just, you know, like Spaceship reviews or something along those lines to see, you know, what the go was. So pretty much I'll Google just about anything. I have a really interesting scam that happened the other day. Uh, I have a business and I got a message on my Facebook saying that my my business account had been breached. Something had, I had done something wrong that I shouldn't have done whatever it was, but the name, they had the meta symbol in the profile picture. So it made it look like it was coming from Facebook, but the username was something really bizarre. And I was like, no, no, this like doesn't feel right. And so I actually searched that name and on Google, it had come up with a bunch of people who had complained that that person had contacted their business account and that it was fraud and, and things like that. So I think spending the time to really look into things, um, Googling people's reviews. We have so many different places now where people review things, right? Like you can even yeah. go on TikTok and watch a, a quick 30 second video on, you know, something, but you know, just being able to Google and like also, uh, I think it's scam watch. They also have like a list of known scams that have been reported into them. So if it's recent scam, like something that's come up, scam watch will often list those particular scams in there. Like during COVID, there were a lot of COVID scams. And so the fraudsters are definitely opportunists and they were like, okay, we're going to get onto this. Like we know that there's an opportunity here. So you could go onto the scam watch website and see all the, the COVID scams um, and that. So they're also another resource. And I think you can also call scam watch. So if you have questions, like you're not sure about a particular thing, you can also call them. And I always say to people, call your bank. Like they hold your money at the end of the day and you can give them a call and speak to somebody in the fraud team. Like when I was working in superannuation, 
if somebody was unsure about something, they just send them through to me and I'd have a conversation with them saying, tell me more about this. How did the person get in contact with you? Or how did you find out about this particular thing or whatever it was? And we'd have a conversation. Like I was there to serve and help the members of that super fund. Um, So there are plenty of people that you can reach out to and talk to if you are unsure as well. That's an awesome tip. Remember to call your bank and you can ask them. I like that a lot. Yeah. Leah, this conversation has been really insightful and super helpful. If anyone wants to look up any more information so that they can arm themselves against fraud, where should they go? I would say, number one, immediately contact your financial institution, especially if you've sent money to somebody. With scams, this is really important because majority of the time, the victim holds the financial liability. So I would say immediately contact your financial institution and advise them. And then you can always go to the Scam Watch website to find out more information about recent and past scams um, and get additional resources. Fantastic. Leah, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for Thank having you. me. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us. If you found this episode helpful, please rate us five stars, write a review or share with a friend. If you're new to investing, make sure to listen to our first 10 episodes. Follow us at Get Rich Slow Club or Tash at Tash Invest or me at Anna Christina. This show was brought to you by Natasha Edgman, who is an authorized representative, 12998881 of Guideway Financial Services, AFSL 420367, and Perla, who is an authorized representative, 1281540 of Sanlam Private Wealth, AFSL 337927. Knowledge is power, especially when it comes to investing. So make sure you check out our financial services guides and read the product disclosure statement and target market determination for any investments you're considering. See our show notes for more info. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.